Live from the murder castle in Inglewood, Illinois. This is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 197. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philadelphia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wrecked my voice. Well, I guess there'll be a uh, yo. You got yeah, you got to leave that in. <laughs> Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Scott. This is Eddie the Axe. <laughs> and this is Mark. <laughs> Happy Halloween, everybody. Today we'll be discussing a great Halloween story. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear a postal patent case, which I am sure Cash will have a lot to say about Lysander Spooner. And we're going to discuss the Colombian exposition stamps. This week on October 30th marks the last day of the 125th anniversary of the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, or the Chicago World's Fair. The fair celebrated the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of the Americas. The fair was an amazing spectacle with over 23 million visitors and in at least one way changed the face of the world as we know it. The fair included many technological wonders, including the first gasoline-powered motor car in the United States, the Daimler Quadricycle. It also housed an alternating current power plant, a 46-foot-long cannon, a 1,500-pound statue of the Venus de Milo made of chocolate. Which was given out, by the way. A little kid walked up and said, trick-or-treat, and they gave it to him. I wanted to, I want to see him carrying it off then. 1,500 pounds worth? 1,500 pounds of chocolate. That's like the chocolate statue of Liberty at the Hershey's store at uh, New York, New York Hotel. Oh. Is that 1,500 pounds? I don't know, but it's big. So if I go there and trick-or-treat, they'll give it to me? You can try. I'm not sure you'd want to eat it. It's been there for a long time. (laughs) Uh, And it also featured juicy fruit gum. Already been chewed? ABC gum. Mm. The taste, the taste, the taste is going to thrill you. Whatever. Move you. No, that's not juicy fruit. I have no idea. Lord in heaven, I hope that doesn't go on for the entire show. (laughs) Knowing cash, it will. The fair was also home to the world's first Ferris wheel. Hold on, hold it. The world's first Ferris wheel. Oh. Interesting. And brought us the Colombian exposition stamps. By Ferris, do you mean iron? did, Did you know that the Ferris wheel was built and designed by George Washington Gale Ferris, Jr.? I do now. There you go. Do you know his father, George Washington Gale Ferris Sr.? I don't know him personally. Oh, he he was a big mover and shaker in the uh, tube sock industry. Ah, 
I should have known. Yeah, a little thing about the uh, World's Fair there, uh, the Ferris wheel. It cost 50 cents to ride the Ferris wheel. 50 cents? How much is 50 cents today? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Because that wasn't in the script for you to ask that. Um, It cost 50 cents, and today that would be $14. No, today 50 cents is half a dollar. Well, it still is. And they also uh, put out a half-dollar coin for the Colombian World's Fair, which was in general circulation, too. So if you want to find one of those. That is true. And and in decent condition, if we're talking about graded coins here, um, a 61 or a 62 will cost you around 50 bucks. Yep. It's a it's a silver coin. They're kind of neat looking. 50 bucks instead of 50 cents? Yes. So your 50 cents is now worth 50 bucks. And just as a side note, William Somers issue, was issued a patent for a 16-seat roundabout, whatever that is. But they say that's sort of like a Ferris wheel, too. Roundabout is like a Ferris wheel, but flat. I have no clue. We call those merry-go-rounds. No. Well, maybe it was the... Maybe it was. Yeah. Well, the transportation building contained the horse-drawn carts alongside bicycles and boats, which were all dwarfed by American-manufactured steam locomotives. Wow. The exposition's organizers believing that trains were the transportation of the future. Only one vehicle in the entire display had an internal combustion engine, and it was tucked away in the back of the hall. A wire-wheeled quadricycle, similar to that which Daimler had displayed in Paris at the 1889 World's Fair. Even though most Americans had never seen one before, the vehicle got almost no notice. Oh, hold on. No, most Americans had never seen it before? I don't think most Americans have seen it yet. Uh, if they were at the Paris exhibition, they would have. How many people here have seen a quadricycle? I got one parked out front. Oh, well, then I apologize. It was so overlooked, in fact, that the press barely covered it, and it was not even mentioned in the exhibition catalog. (laughs) Cars. They're going nowhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Trains. All about trains. Choo-choo trains. The wheels of the future. It was, however, noticed by two individuals, bicycle mechanic Charles Duryea, who ended up partnering with his brother to create the Duryea Motor Wagon Company in 1896 and produce a one-cylinder Duryea Motor Wagon, the first mass-production gas-powered vehicle in the United States. So the Columbian World's Fair was really indirectly... was a hotbed of manufacturing activity. Yeah, but it indirectly resulted in the invention of the automobile and the decline of trains <laughs> the decline of trains <laughs> <laughs> well you bring that up the other notable party to show interest in the daimler quadricycle was none other than henry ford oh wow ford returned to dearborn michigan and created what he called the gasoline buggy ford drove the car for the first time on july 4th 1896 and later sold it for 200 dollars Only a few years after that, he incorporated the Ford Motor Company, and the age of the automobile had officially begun. So it really did start the car. Yeah. Because of the Columbian World's Fair. Like I said, and it changed the world, changed the face of the world as we know it. Yeah. So lesson is, look at the exhibits in the back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Find the stuff not in the catalog. Only a few items from the fair still exist today in Chicago. 
The Palace of Fine Arts is now home to the Museum of Science and Industry and an area called the Wooded Island, which was described as a place to get away from the noise of the fair, had fallen into disrepair, but in 2015 completed an $8.1 million renovation. There was a 65-foot statue of the Republic that served as a symbol of the fair, and though the original statue is gone, there is a 24-foot bronze replica that sits today in Jackson Park. And you know what happened to the original statue? Tell me, please. It burnt down. <laughs> it caught I, on fire. <laughs> I, I know you said that when you looked it up, and I still can't believe a statue burns down. That All seems right. so bizarre. It, they made it out of wood or something? Maybe it had inter- interior wooden structure or something holding it. So by catching on fire, it was internal combustion? <sighs> Maybe it was made out of matchsticks. Well, it's funny that you say that. The Columbian Exposition also holds another item of historical note. Close to the site of the exposition was what many came to describe as the Murder Castle, a building owned by America's first serial killer, H.H. Holmes. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett in New Hampshire in 1861. That figures. Mudgett. Okay. New Hampshire. (laughs) A new when he was he one of the New Hampshire mudgets? He must have been. That's <laughs> where all city killers are born, though. <laughs> In 1885, he abandoned his wife and young child, fleeing accusations of fraud, poisoning, and murder, and moved to Illinois, where he changed his name to Holmes in what many believe was an homage to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's character Sherlock Holmes. Holmes took work at a pharmacy near Jackson Park, which would become the site of the fair eight years later. Believed to be a masterful car artist and highly charismatic, he is is suspected of having swindled money from his pharmacy co-workers and used it to buy an empty plot of land in the Inglewood neighborhood. That's where he would uh, bury all his victims. A little worse, maybe. Ooh. Holmes built a two-story building on the lot and later added a third floor. Too many bodies to hide. During the construction, Holmes is said to have hired and fired several workers in order to hide the true intentions of the building. The building, which is said to have contained several false staircases and doorways, as well as small interior rooms that were rigged with gas lines that Holmes could control to suffocate guests and then put them in a chute that led to the basement where they would be subsequently killed and disposed of. The basement contained acid vats, quick lime pits, and a crematorium. He also sold skeletons to medical research facilities with connections he had made during a brief time spent in medical school. (laughs) Nobody thought to ask where he was getting the skeletons (laughs) from. Having become adept at insurance fraud during medical school, by desecrating cadavers and saying they died in accidents, Holmes was able to collect on insurance policies that he had taken out. It is believed he used the same tactics on victims on what has been dubbed the murder castle. Murder castle. Holmes was ultimately captured and convicted of murder of one of his, quote, friends, Benjamin Pietzel. Yeah, good friend. Holmes convinced Pietzel to fake his own death and have his wife collect the insurance money. Instead of finding a cadaver to use for the body, however, Holmes actually murdered Pietzel and convinced his wife that he was still alive and hiding in London. 
Holmes was even able to convince Mrs. Pietzel to hand over custody of three of her five children, who he later killed as well. So, not a good babysitter. (laughs) Not so much. It is said that Holmes killed anywhere from 20 to 200 people, but he was only ever directly tied to nine. So that's what, about half? Something like that. 200? He was found guilty and hung in Pennsylvania in 1896. It is reported that his neck did not snap and that he slowly strangled for almost 20 minutes. Sounds like a fitting end. Right? Years later, the murder castle was mysteriously burned down. A witness reported that two men had entered the building and a short time later were seen running away as the building started burning. Can anyone take a guess at what stands on the site of the infamous murder castle now? A bouncy house? (laughs) (laughs) A cemetery. The Englewood Post Office. Oh, excellent. Yes, it's it's true. The post office sits where the murder castle used to be. Good, Good way to tie it into stamps. Bet you didn't think I could do that, did you? And in true fashion of a con man, it was rumored for a long time that Holmes had actually bribed his way out of the gallows and a cadaver was buried instead of Holmes. As it was his wish that he be buried 10 feet deep and covered in concrete, many, poli- many people believe that the story was true. The rumors were finally put to rest in 2017 when the grave was opened and the body exhumed for DNA testing. Or was it? It was. Because it was done as part of a television series where one of Holmes' descendants believed that he had survived and moved to London to become Jack the Ripper. Or did he? The test proved... Indeed, the body was that of Holmes. Or did it? It did. Or did it? Uh, how much of him was Native American? I don't think they did that kind of test. <laughs> well, it was 23, 2017, so you just send it off to 23andMe. <laughs> oh, Mark. Now on to some more important news and notes. Or is it? <laughs> Yes, they are more important. The U.S. Supreme Court on Friday agreed to take up a dispute involving a small Alabama company that accused the U.S. Postal Service of infringing on its patented mail processing system and improperly convincing a federal tribunal to cancel the patent. The justices will hear an appeal by Return Mail, Inc. of a lower court ruling that upheld the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's tribunal, their 2015 determination that the company's patent covering a system for processing undeliverable mail was invalid. Return Mail argued that since the Postal Service, a self-supporting independent federal agency, cannot be sued in the same way as private companies, it should not be eligible to ask the patent office to review a patent's validity like private companies can. The Trump administration, backing the Postal Service, asked the Supreme Court not to hear the case. The case began in 2011 when Return Mail sued the U.S. government, accusing the Postal Service of stealing its technology after the company had tried to license its system, but the agency instead developed its own. The Postal Service challenged the patent's validity at the Patent Office's Patent Trial and Appeal Board. The board's patent review processes have become especially popular with high-technology companies that are frequent targets of patent lawsuits 
and have led to a high rate of patent cancellation. Yeah, this patent is kind of odd because, well, first of all, suing is stupid because um, we all, everybody already knows you can sue the post office over patents because they were sued for their canceling devices back in the 1870s. Well, not only that, they were they were sued for the the Korean War. Yeah, but that too. Memorial yeah. too. Yeah, but back in the 1870s, you know, when they had the duplex cancelers, those were patented. And yeah. the post office had to pay the company to have them made. So, you know, that's a fake one. But this is an interesting one because what it does, when it prints that little barcode on the envelope, what it does in there is it also puts information that has to do with the post office that it's deposited at and some information about the sender, the return address, if it has a uh, something in there. So they're going. It's just cursory examination. The guy had an idea of, hey, when you're doing this barcode, why don't you put some more information in it and uh, hire me, and I'll do it for you. And the post office said, no, I got this ourselves. So it is going to be kind of interesting. Well, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit last year upheld the board's decision to invalidate a key part of the return mail's patent. Rulings by the board can prevent further challenges to a patent's validity in a federal court where infringement lawsuits are typically resolved. But the same constraints are not applied to the federal government when it is accused. Return Mail argued that this means that the government should not be allowed to launch challenges before the board. Yeah, that sounds kind of interesting. And Tom earlier mentioned Lysander Spooner who is one of my heroes from the 1851 period. And uh, he, he didn't sue the U.S. Post Office. The U.S. Post Office sued him. In uh, 1844, he started a postal service. And at the time, the post office was charging about 13 cents to send a letter between Boston and Massachusetts. And he lowered it to 5 cents. So clearly, everybody wanted to pay 5 cents more than 13 cents. Well, I do know you can sue the federal government. And uh, as an active duty military, of course, you, part of your contract basically says you can't sue the yeah. government. I did, and I won. <laughs> <laughs> you fought the law, and the law won. That's right. <laughs> so I, I had a, I no, got he a, fought the law, and he won. Or he I, won, yeah. I, I got in a car accident, and it was a civilian employee of the yeah. military that hit me, not on a military installation. And he said because he was driving a government vehicle that I couldn't sue him. Oh. Well, it turns out I could. Yeah. Well, that's funny, too, because uh, Lysander Spooner, he was sued by the federal government to close down his uh, mail system. And he basically said, you know, the U.S. government has the right to establish postal roads and everything like that. But no place does it say that they get a monopoly on it. And he took it to court and he won. He won. The federal government lost, but then the federal government just kept suing him and changing rules until he they forced him out of business anyway. After he won the case, so uh, he he was an interesting fellow because one of the reasons supposedly that he started the mail service is somebody said you know the post office has a monopoly and he said they do here hold my beer. Since we were discussing the Columbian Exposition and uh, 1893, we're going to step back and discuss the stamps of the Columbian Exposition. 
Or are we? Yes, we are. The Colombian stamps were supplied by the American Banknote Company, which had a four-year contract for the production of United States postage stamps beginning in December 1st, 1889. Or did they? However, where previous contracts had required printing companies to provide designs and plates at their own expense for any new stamps required by the post office, the 1889 contract specified that the post office would pay these costs. Hold on, hold on. What, which costs? Costs of uh, making the printing plates. Oh, not of printing the stamps. No. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. No, In, designing and printing the designing and creation of the printing plates is what they had to pay for. Got it. Or did they? Indeed, Postmaster John Wanamaker of department store fame executed a new contract with American banknotes specifically for the Colombian stamps without any competitive bidding process, which allowed the company to charge 17 cents per thousand stamps, in contrast to the 7.45 cents per thousand it had been collecting for stamps of the 1890 Definitive Series. So obviously they were indirectly paying for the cost of the plates. So the Postal Service paid 17 cents per thousand for the $5 Colombian stamp, and they sold them for $5 a piece. Now that's a little bit of a profit margin. This arrangement prompted considerable public criticism, which was not allayed by American banknotes' argument that the Colombian size, double that of a normal stamp, warranted a higher price. Yeah, I don't buy that one either, because, okay, if it is double the paper... And double the ink. Well, yeah, okay, it's double the ink and double the glue and everything. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Double the engraving. (laughs) Double the engraving. Fifteen denominations of the series were placed on sale by post offices on Monday, January 2nd, 1893. They were available nationwide and were not restricted to the exposition in any way. This was a larger number of stamps than the United States Post Office Department had ever offered in a series, thanks to the unprecedented inclusion of stamps denominated one, two, three, four, and five dollars. No U.S. postage stamp previously issued had cost more than 90 cents. A 16th stamp, the 8 cent, to provide for the newly lowered registered letter fee was added during March. As a result, the face value of the complete set was $16.34, a substantial sum of money during 1893, and in 2018 dollars, the set would cost approximately $458.32 today. Yep, the $5 Colombian was a $140 stamp. Well, you know, they also issued, uh, because of the confusion between the color of the one cent and uh, one cent and four cent Colombian issues and the 10 cent special delivery in use at the time, they also decided to change the color of the special delivery stamp to yellow in conjunction with the um, exposition. And so you could include that as an issue of the exposition. It was issued January 24th, 1893. Well, and it's actually called the Colombian yeah, issue and, inside and, the Scott's catalog. And, and then at, at, the, uh, at the end of 1893, then they went back to blue for the special delivery colors. Was that why that, only, that one stamp is yep. that orange-yellow, that, yellow-orange? Yep. Yellow yep, that is why the color change in that specific stamp. 
So That's technically, it is a part of the set, even though nobody ever collects it as part of the set. Interesting. Or do they? As a result of the most expensive stamps, especially the dollar values, only a small number were sold, and unsold stamps were destroyed after the Colombian issue was removed from sale on April 12, 1894. In all, the American Banknote Company printed more than 2 billion Colombian stamps with a total face value exceeding $40 million. Okay, Scott, I heard differently about this. I heard that you could buy Colombians up until like the 1920s that people still had them in their stocks. Well, yeah, that's dealers having them in their stocks. and Oh, not the post offices? Well, there may have been some post offices who never returned old stock to the post office, too. Yeah. Uh, you would probably have to search just like you do for the $2 inverted Jenny sheet today. You just have to search smaller post offices that they didn't collect all those issues from. Yeah, because there are well, several stories about people. We're, we're actually That's actually going to be a little couple paragraphs further down is going to oh. actually mention that in a way. Oh, then I will continue to listen. All righty. Opinion regarding the Colombian issue at the time was mixed. The set sold well and did not have the sort of criticism that resulted in the withdrawal of the 1869 pictorial issue. Okay, now I need to look that up because I didn't know the 1869s had some sort of oh yeah thing about them. Oh, people oh, hated that, those that, stamps. That's because they didn't show dead people. Well, yeah, that too. But they, they they were small. People thought that their stamps should be big for some reason. Well, you have to get value for the money you pay. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> the 1869 issue was highly hated. And you look gonna, at it today and you go, why the hell did you hate this? That's going to have to be the subject of a podcast. I'm going to have to write something on that because that's just too interesting not to. Yeah. However, approval was not universal. An organization known as the Society for the Suppression of Speculative Stamps. The S O the S S O S S. Well, was also called the Society for the Suppression of Spurious Stamps. Same thing. S S O S S was created in protest of the creation of this set, deeming the exposition in Chicago insufficiently important to be honored by postage. And some collectors balked at the post office department's willingness to profit from the growing hobby of philately. Are you kidding? Cars came out of it. See, I, I, yeah, but this is the I stamps. disagree. I well, yeah, it's true. But in 1893, they didn't know the car was going to come out of that. Well, I disagree. Remember, the car wasn't even in the book. <laughs> well, I yeah. disagree that these were at the time considered commemorative because... They're actually a promotion for the exposition. Well, yeah, that it was. And so they were more appropriately termed advertising, even though they did commemorate the 400th anniversary of Columbus discovering America and all that. It uh, to me, it's more. They're more of it, like the Pan American set we discovered discussed last week. They're more. They're more considered advertising than uh, commemoration. Yeah, but this was the first one, so everybody goes. Oh, I'm not into change. This is terrible. You know, you're yeah. Because the Pan Americans were where's George Washington? Seven, eight years later. Which, by the way, you know, George Washington is on the two cent uh, Colombian. If you look, there's six guys on the left. The third guy is George Washington. So he made a cameo. Yeah. Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> Is his hat intact? <laughs> no, it's broken. 
Ridiculing the $5 stamp, the Chicago Tribune stated that it could be used for only one purpose, mailing a 62-and-a-half-pound package of books at the book rate. Well, that's not true. You could mail a very expensive item registered mail and pay that much for oh, yeah. insurance. Well, heck, you can mail a regular letter for $5. <laughs> well, yeah, but... Yeah, there are first-day covers with uh, $5 on it. Yeah, but those are overpaid philatelic creations. $4.98 <laughs> worth. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you see, you see the same thing today. They issue like uh, express mail stamps for $24.95, and everybody goes, what the hell are you doing? It's like, well, there's actually a rate for it. One of the things that amazes me is that most of the first day covers you find are addressed to Europe. Yeah, they're not they're not addressed to somebody here in the United States. Well, it was a hundred and forty a five dollar Colombian cost a hundred and forty dollars. And I might want to point out that not only is it a a hundred and forty dollars, but people got paid much less back then. So if you actually went by how much like wage that was it was a weeks, month a, a month or more yeah a couple weeks worth of salary so you know we think today 140 bucks well you can earn that maybe in 2 days back then it might have taken somebody two and a half weeks to make that or, or a month or actually longer yeah a month yeah a month or more yeah a lot to of, make 5 bucks <laughs> oh yeah well oh yeah yeah a lot a lot of people only got paid 1 or 2 dollars a week well coming back to what cash was talking about earlier the Colombians did not immediately increase in value after being removed from sale, due partly to substantial speculation resulting in a glut of stamps on the secondary market. See, they didn't sell well, but the people that ended up buying them were stamp dealers. Yeah. Okay. However, in 2018, in mint condition, a full set has a catalog value of $9,498. These prices go substantially higher for never-hinged examples and well-centered examples in high grades. Per Professional Stamp Experts Stamp Market Quarterly Price Guide, the price for a never-hinged set with a grade of 95 is in excess of $300,000. I just got my first and only $5 Colombian last weekend at Philatelic Fiesta. Really? Yeah. Was it half a one? Well, actually, it's nice, but it has a very, very small thin on it. Otherwise, I couldn't afford a nice one. But it's a used one, and I collect mostly used stamps. But that's my first $5 Colombian I've ever owned. Well, I've, I uh, I was fortunate a number of years ago I was searching for fakes. And uh, I was particularly looking for like C3A inverted Jenny fakes and things like the fake newspaper stamps on, the, on eBay. And I came across not only the inverted Jennies, but I came across fake $5 Colombians. Mm-hmm. And I ended up buying two or three of them. Uh, from some guy in Germany, and uh, they are not very convincing if you take a, a second to look at the design. It's very poorly executed. And the perforations but, are bad. No, the perforations are fine. But at a glance, you could mistake it for a genuine stamp. Oh, then that's somebody different than the one I was looking at. They have a nice-looking you know, set of Colombians, but the perforations, they're like... Perf 13 and a half, which are way, way, too, they're way too small perforations. Right. No, the, these were notable for the fact that they were, they were yep. more convincing than average. <sighs> although the uh, quality of the printing was not great. It, uh, 
obviously they didn't use an engraved mm-hmm. plate to print it. They used lithography. So uh, that that's another tell, obviously. I Just went the paper convincing. <clears throat> yeah, actually, it is. I I once got a dollar uh, thirty zap that was fake, and it was I, I stared at it because it's like there's something wrong with this stamp. It doesn't look normal. And the perfs were great. The paper was great. <clears throat> Finally, on the the bottom frame line was very crooked. It it sort of made like a funnel look to it. And it threw off my eye, and I go, that's not correct. And so finally I figured it out, but at first glance, it looked perfectly good. <clears throat> and if you weren't well-knowledged in stamp collecting, you would absolutely think it was real. On the, on the subject of fakes of, of these famous stamps, uh, I do know that there is a, also a forgery of the two-cent Colombian out there that uh, is uh, very, very, very scarce. It was a postal forgery, and it's quite well done, actually. Um, I have yet to find one, actually. So um, it's mentioned, I think, by Vero Tyler in one of his books. The two-cent? The two-cent. The most common. The most common one, yes. And it was a postal forgery. The whole point was to defraud the post office. Uh, The $5 is probably more of a philatelic forgery. Yeah, I guess if it was the most popular one, it would make sense that that's the one you would counterfeit. Right. Well, but on the other side of that, if it's the one that is mostly seen by people, a forgery would stand out more. You would think, but apparently this this one is well enough done that it doesn't stand out. Well, but look at the uh, look at the modern day. Look at the the hearts and the other counterfeits that are out there. You look at them and just to look at it, it looks like. The regular stamp. Right. Right. And even up close, it looks better. Plausible. You know, yeah, better production value than the than the actual stamp. Sometimes, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was not only in design and commemorative purpose that this issue proved a watershed in U.S. stamp history. The Colombians, like all previous U.S. stamps, had been produced by private security printers on limited-term contracts periodically presented for bidding. They proved, however, to be the last U.S. stamps printed by a private company for many years. During early 1894, the American banknote company failed to secure renewal of its stamp contract because the U.S. Bureau of Engraving and Printing submitted a lower bid. And the Bureau then enjoyed a monopoly on U.S. stamp production for decades thereafter. It wasn't until 1944 that a private company again produced U.S. stamps, the Overrun Country series, which required special multicolor printing. And we all know how that turned out. Yes. And the Bureau subsequently resumed its exclusive role in production, only gradually relinquishing it over the next 60 years. U.S. stamp operations at the Bureau ceased entirely during 2005. Scholars believe that the Bureau's first task during 1894 was to finish some Colombian sheets printed by American Banknote. What makes this theory plausible is that while many Colombian stamps are perfectly perforated, others are distinctly substandard in this regard, with partially punched chads and or holes that are missing, ragged or misplaced. Flaws that would also mar the stamps of the first Bureau definitive issue released later during 1894. Another note is there were uh, actually five different distinct gum types that you can find on the Colombians. 
if you if you search through stocks, you can find at least five distinct gum types. And I think that had to do mostly with the fact that they were mixing the gum on a daily basis. And some days were more humid. Some days were less humid. Uh, they, some gum dried quicker than others. Some gum was thinner or thicker. Uh, so just the variation in the gum itself can be uh, a very interesting topic to investigate and certainly one that if you're going to specialize in these stamps, you should be aware of. So who had the better perforations, the Bureau or American Banknote? American Banknote. Yeah, I think that's what they're saying because the, the first issues that the Bureau did had problems with the holes too. Well, that kind of lasted quite a while, actually. It wasn't just the first Bureau issue that had perforation problems. But it kind of makes sense in a way that, you know, the Colombians went from really good perforations to really crummy ones, that that's actually if, if you study conjecturally them, possible. Also, if you study them, you'll notice that some Colombians have really small perf holes and some have what we would consider today normal-sized perf holes. True. Well, this is going to mar cash a little bit, but oh, we have I'm some. I'm really new- super upset on this one. I know, but we have some new issues we have to announce. Uh, nah. Christmas stamps in November or October. Technically, it is not Halloween for another couple hours. I am. It's Halloween. Today's the 31st. Y- you're supposed to wait until after Halloween. You're not supposed to discuss Christmas until after Halloween, and preferably. Then I have a great idea. Why don't we stop recording and we'll come back and record this tomorrow? Then you can't <sighs> complain. Does that okay. sound fair? No, because then you got to respect the bird. Yeah. Yeah. You can't discuss Christmas before oh, Thanksgiving. <laughs> Don't start. <laughs> Don't encourage him. Well, Canada Post is releasing its Christmas stamps November 2nd. See, we're announcing it today, but they're not coming out till the 2nd. No offense to the bird, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> that is because they are fair and understand that you're not supposed to discuss Christmas until after Halloween. That may be true. Canada Post website states, Send Christmas greetings to family, friends, and loved ones with this booklet of 12 permanent domestic stamps featuring a fresh and contemporary look at the nativity. At the center, above baby Jesus, is the bright Christmas star. More stars spell out the words Christmas and Noel at the top and bottom of the image. In a departure from past Christmas issues that have reproduced old master paintings, this year's Christmas stamp tells the story of Christ's birth through simple, colorful imagery and rich symbolism evocative of traditional folk art. Ideal for holiday cards and letters, or for sending invitations to seasonal events and parties, these simple, elegant stamps add a warm dose of Christmas cheer to your festive mail. Is that because they're all wearing black and red cardigans? Those aren't cardigans. They're not cardigans? No. Are you sure? Yes. Oh, what are they? It's not an ugly, it's not an ugly sweater contest? Looks like, uh, looks like uh, Mary and Joseph there are wearing very ugly sweaters. Or are they? Or are they? <laughs> <laughs> Now I got two of them. It's bad bad enough with Gash doing it. You have to help. Well, but it's funny when I do it. (laughs) (laughs) Or is it? That's it. I quit. (laughs) So uh, I'm noticing that the publicity photo for the Canada stamp is immaculately centered. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Not like the Postal Service, although when the Postal Service puts out a press image, half the time they don't even include the perforations in the margin. They just show, yeah. the, show the design. Now, with the, with the Canada Post, they either are showing an actual stamp or they're, they've added the, the borders and the perforations to the uh, image. But either way, um, when they come out of the printing press from Canada Post, they're much more likely to look like that than they are if they yeah. came from the, from the U.S. Postal Service. Okay, I'm going to, well, I'm going to divert slightly because I'm looking at the Christmas stamp here on our website, which is uh, stampjoheretoday.com or something like that. And at the top of my screen, I see this black and white picture of this guy wearing a bowler hat. Is that Ferris? That's H.H. H. Holmes. Oh, that's Holmes. That's a guy who uh, made the Terror House. That murder Castle. Or Murder Castle. Come on, that sounds much better than Terror House. Murder Castle. Yes, that is a picture of America's first serial killer. Okay, so go to the website and you can see uh, Baby Jesus. And then above Baby Jesus is the Nativity Star. And don't forget. And then above the Nativity Star is the first mass murderer in Chicago history. And don't forget United the States history. Ooh, United States history. Don't forget not, the not Ferris mass. wheel. Not mass. Cereal. Cereal. Oh, cereal. Don't don't forget the first Ferris wheel. And there's also the first Ferris wheel there. And I'm going to cheese cash off even more because the Royal Mail is releasing their Christmas stamp set on November 1st. <laughs> <laughs> The stamps feature traditional Christmas scenes with people posting their Christmas mail at various style of post boxes in the countryside and towns. The set features eight stamps, including a first and second, a first large and second large, and then one pound 25, one pound 45, one pound 55, and two pound 25 rates. You're welcome. Mm. When you have more than one baby Jesus, is it Jesus? Not sure. Have to write the Pope. Well, we have some. Sh- <laughs> Sorry, first first day with new lips. <laughs> we have some shows to announce, but first, one of the upcoming shows actually in a couple weeks, November seventeenth. Someone emailed me a press release. This is uh, from the Black River Stamp Club. Airmail Centennial, a chance for BRSC to showcase aviation history at annual show November 17th. Illyria, Ohio, the Black River Stamp Club will celebrate the centennial of airmail service during its annual show and bourse November 17th. In conjunction with the International Women's Air and Space Museum in Cleveland, club members are preparing a special exhibit of artifacts marking the history of women in aviation. Members are also assembling philatelic items marking events and first flights from Ohio's aviation history. The show runs from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. at St. Jude School Hall, 590 Poplar Street, Illyria. Or does it? Airmail service may not have gotten off the ground had it not been for William G. Sharp, a Democratic member of Congress from Illyria. Sharp's public support for airmail service began six years before the first regular airmail flight on May 15, 1918. He first acted after a House of Representatives committee omitted $50,000 for experimental airmail service in the 1913 federal budget, proposing on April 20, 1912, an amendment to include money 
for the transportation of mail by aeroplane or other aircraft. Hold on, hold on. What year was that? Um, 1912, 1913. That's really interesting. So they were thinking about it all the way back then, and it took till 1918 for somebody to say, yeah, let's go ahead and use a plane. Yep. I mean, how experimental is it? There's a plane. Let's see if we can put an envelope on it and see if the plane still flies. Well, although it was handily defeated, Sharp continued to introduce similar measures into federal spending bills until he was appointed ambassador to France in 1914. That's a way to get rid of them, right? Right. Club president Helen Kopp said the history of airmail provides plenty of thrills and firsts of which people may not be aware. Having items on display portraying that important history of mail delivery will prove entertaining and educational, she said. We're more than pleased to team with the International Women's Air and Space Museum to share aviation history. Women played an important role in that history, and we're proud to be able to share that history that people may not know about, Cop said. Poncho Barnes. The club will commemorate the Air Merrill Centennial with a cover bearing a special cachet and pictorial postmark. The cover will sell for $2. Again, the club will accept donations of stamps, covers, and supplies for Stamps for the Wounded, the club is the largest donor to the Virginia-based program, which introduces stamp collecting to injured U.S. service members. Other show features include a bourse with 10 stamp dealers, offering a wide variety of philatelic material, free stamps for children, and information for adults to introduce them to philately. A silent auction offering dozens of philatelic items and a U.S. Postal Service booth offering new stamp issues. So if you happen to be in Ohio on November 17th, go check that out. That sounds interesting. There's a lot to see. Sounds like there'll be a lot to see just other than a normal show. Yeah, good for them. Good for them. Also, that is interesting about the information you sent us. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Let's uh, like I said, if you want to give your show some props and give us information like that, we'll be happy to read it. I'll mention the show again probably next week because this is usually uh, it's a week further out than I would normally bring it up. Well, the rest of the show schedule, November 9th and 10th, the 31st annual Mid-Cities Stamp Club Expo in Grapevine, Texas, is going to be at the Grapevine Convention Center, 1209 South Main Street. Their website is mid-citiesstampclub.com slash stampshow.htm. November 10th, the Rubber City Stamp Club, 99th annual stamp show in Akron, Ohio, is going to be at the Akron General Health and Wellness Center at 4125 Medina Road. Kudos, 100 years, almost. Almost, next year. Yeah. November 10th and 11th, the MSDA Falls Cincinnati Area Stamp Show in Westchester, Ohio, at the Four Points by Sheraton Cincinnati North, 7500 Tyler's Place Boulevard. Their website is msdastamp.com. November 10th, the 2018 Johnstown Stamp Show in Johnstown, Pennsylvania at St. John Gulabert Activity Center at 110 Adams Street. And we've mentioned it before, but November 16th and 17th, is that the correct date, Scott? I believe it's the 16th, 17th, 18th. It's uh, thir Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Or is it? 16th, 17th, and 18th, Scott and I will be at the show in Chicago. Which, by the way, a lot of people are calling me 
Just don't come and scream in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people are actually contacting us, asking us if we're going to be there. Scott and Tom are going to be there. So everybody who's listening, stop by and say hi. Although we won't have a booth, unfortunately. So Yeah. But no, I've gotten probably 15 people easily saying, are you going to be at Chicago? And show, we, we the podcast is going to be in the uh, literature competition. Yeah, I'll have to go check it out and see what we're yeah. what our thing looks like there. Well, thank you for listening. This has been Stamp Show here today, episode number one ninety seven. This was Tom. This is Scott. <laughs> and this was Mark. Or were we? <laughs> and we just offed cash. Sorry. <laughs> You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Or does it?